blockchain. Blockchain. What is value. blockchain? Who feels how like they understand blockchain? Hopefully, we can be human. How can they Once be Utopia can be another person. Turn off your phone, lock your door, and study this technology for a day. It's a lot of the blockchain that that we are trying to put blockchain everywhere. It's really exciting to be involved in blockchain from from us. But it's also very good to ask this question, what is money, how it came about, what is its role, what does it do? This is episode 3 of White Papers on this End, my ongoing research about blockchain as a tool for radical imagination. And I'm Barbara Cueto, curator and researcher exploring the intersection of activism, contemporary art and new technologies. In the last episode, we focused on how blockchain could support commons-oriented economies, as well as the potential threats transforming the inner dynamics of an already existing community. Let's continue this inquiry, looking into how blockchain can reframe the notion of value. We unravel threats of thinking about value in a different way, as a fluid diverse practice that is not dominated by capital relations. Speculation plays a huge role in this process, so we will talk about world building as a methodology to develop more social uses of blockchain. So let's start by introducing Gary Zexi Zhang. He's an artist and a writer whose work explores fictions, infrastructures, and conceptual systems that compose the concrete world, such as ecology, finance, or information. He and I talk about Ponzi schemes and how the concept of scarcity, or actually the idea of subverting that, it is at the core of these plots. Ponzi schemes become almost philosophical tools to talk about money and value as a system of beliefs that reinforce power structures. Ponzi-nomics, or like the idea of a Ponzi scheme, is kind of pretty defining with crypto, I guess. I think it's basically the fact of social engineering becoming something that is now a commonplace idea. The framing of a Ponzi scheme within crypto projects is kind of switched around right in the initial it was like a a kind of total insult and then it's not just an insult it's a business model and then it's not just a business model it becomes a philosophical position it's like oh wait you know the us dollar in a sense is a kind of ponzi scheme as in all of these things being social technologies being things that are made partly out of belief and partly out of forms of social coercion I've been thinking about it a lot in terms of world making. I mean this in a kind of relatively value neutral sense because you know world making sounds radical and cool. I'm not really saying that all of these kind of Ponzi projects are necessarily radical and cool. It's more that for whatever wide set of reasons broadly that the economy has become quite powerfully speculative at least at certain layers the idea that something in this kind of ponzi way that's made out of belief can also become a portal into another reality and again here reality really means either value system or economy or a kind of community of exchange the idea that um, a ponzi scheme can become a kind of portal into another world like that whether that world is made out of ethereum or circles ubi becomes really not just an attractive fantasy, but becomes kind of the fundamental gamble that any project is taking on. The Ponzi scheme kind of disguises this idea of abundance. Like at the bottom of the Ponzi scheme, there's this idea that 
you know, almost like Jesus with the fishes. It's like we can all have more, everyone else can have some, and there will always be enough. And while that is obviously not true in the kind of like particular kind of econ 101 context of like scarce material resources and supply and demand, within a wider set of ways of thinking about economy, as well as about, you know, a future oriented distribution politics of economy over time, there's something about the kind of idea of a Ponzi scheme that does seem to contain the seeds of this uh, abundance. In the previous episode, we mentioned interdependencies as a fundamental concept in community economies. These diverse economic systems are not exclusively or predominantly capitalist. To understand and explore this economic diversity, we need to think across concept, to imagine the plurality of economic existences, exchanges and possibilities. The authors Jacob Gibson Graham have studied the characteristics of community economies and paved the way for a more expansive economic thinking. Well, I'm Catherine Gibson, and I am a feminist economic geographer and political economist, and I worked for many years with Julie Graham and published under the name J.K. Gibson Graham, and I'm now um, spending a year in a fellowship in Australian studies in the US at Harvard University, but normally I'm based in Sydney, teaching in the Institute for Culture and Society at Western Sydney University. So our interest was in saying, well, what is it that is stopping us from theorizing and enacting a post-capitalist world? And one of the things that we identified was this kind of language that was centered on what we called capitalist centrism, centering of all economic identity around the kind of model of or ideal of capitalist economic relationships. So in sense of trying to move beyond that, we felt it's necessary to create a different kind of language of economy in which there is value given to or emphasis and agency given to economic diversity that could be seen as operating not only in the kind of aura or in, in a subordinated relationship to capitalist accumulation, but could have its own dynamics and its own trajectories and agency and so on. So the language of a diverse economy was very important to us in terms of trying to deconstruct capitalist centrism of so much economic analysis. And I guess language, you know, is important because if you don't have a way of talking about something, it's very hard to imagine and enact something else. So it was a first step towards thinking about agency. For me, blockchain is, let's say, a code language that can allow us to think otherwise. The technology functions as a sandbox for institution making, which means that it can, in theory, work for any project. I believe that using this technological language can help us to understand, investigate and develop diverse economic systems where money is not at the center, because the value comes from the community in itself. Catherine Gibson explains the four coordinates that articulate a community economy. One of the coordinates or the kind of concerns of community economies is that surplus relationship to necessity. The other one is the kind of idea of what do we need to survive well, which is that discussion of, you know, how much do we need physically and through money or through other kind of assets or in-kind relationships to survive. And then the encounter is another, the third one. And the fourth is how do we common what would everybody shares, you know, how does as a group or as a society do we organize access to those collective goods and take responsibility for them and look after them? So then we also talked about investing in futures, that kind of notion of finance 
if we think of it from an ethical point of view, is really thinking about how do we put aside something now for a future? How do we think about future generations in terms of what we're doing today? So it brings that kind of temporal notion into your economic relationships now. So these are the kind of interdependencies that we've been interested to unpack, ones with the future, ones with nature, ones with each other, ones with the society as a whole in terms of what is the wealth we have to work with to do something with. Now, how many of those relationships are ones that a blockchain technique could be used for? I'm not sure. So far, these could all seem quite abstract. So let's shift gears and then look into two projects doing economic experimentation with blockchain. These very different projects aim to speculate and help us imagine alternative futures. For me, these projects are rehearsals for the not yet. They are opportunities that think through the technology to explore the multidimensional nature of economic existence. We can start to overcome the binary tension that sets capitalism apart and the ethical decision-making process that was explained by Catherine Gibson before can be formalized on a smart contract level. This idea could potentially make visible and therefore valuable the notion of social surplus. As opposed to traditional understanding of surplus in terms of labor, its social version refers to the cultural and material infrastructure of a social order. So let's start with DOMA. DOMA works as a platform cooperative that leverages the principles of the new token economy to make housing accessible to everyone by bridging the great divide between renting and owning a home. I am Maxim Rokmanigo and I am the director of the Center for Spatial Technologies. DOMA was imagined as this exercise to think about different relationship between real estate units and people in a way where it's owned and used in a bit different way. And the difference in ownership part is that people can sort of crowdfund purchasing flats. Let's say you would have one ownership token and you would buy for that token an apartment where I live and I pay you rent in rent tokens. And that means that you have capital and you're using this capital to get richer with my rent tokens, right? So then the other example would be like now there are these popular rent to own schemes where the replication of that in blockchain type of things would be that you bought this flat with ownership token and I pay you rent in my rent tokens, but part of those tokens are getting converted into shares of your ownership token. Those are already existing dynamics that are out there and they can be just like encoded into these tokenized types of interchange. But then you can also imagine something where something quite crazy happens, which is for instance, like, you know, let's say you own this ownership token, but every 20 years it burns and randomly gets to someone who's part of the platform. I don't know, of course that doesn't make sense, but I mean, when you think about blockchains, those things are possible to make. For us, we're also at this point are more curious about those kinds of more kind of strange scenarios where the conversation becomes of what is actually desirable in terms of value distribution between different stakeholders in the city who could theoretically interact with this physical assets of, of housing. It's also connected to the idea of sustainability, if you think about it, in terms of how do you make people feel like they want to take care of the things around them, buildings around them. How do you think about those things in the longer term? 
During the White Papers on Descent event at the Fanave Museum in Eindhoven, the transdisciplinary collective Black Swan organized a hackathon dinner to explore the notions of value. Here they use live action role playing as a methodology for critical thinking. During the dinner, the participants were invited to perform a role. And in this case, they were asked to embody their most valuable object or asset. This participatory tactic is meant to challenge ideas, beliefs, and social expectations. We'll now hear from Callum Bolden, artist, designer, and anthropologist member of Black Swan. So Black Swan is an interdisciplinary collective of social scientists, artists, designers, technologists, who are all interested in making artists the key holders of the art world or making creative practitioners somehow empowered to make decisions over how resources are used. And we're trying to react against the paradigm in the tech industry, which often finds solutions to problems that don't exist, that it then tries to retrofit onto social groups. And so we're really trying to study the existing dynamics within creative communities and see what we can learn about sustainable economics by looking at what already exists and then thinking about how could a technology, maybe blockchain, but we're not attached to blockchain as a really hype technology, support these existing ways of interacting. Are there some nascent things that could be supported and could maybe like bring more people to it? Um, so these are all open questions. So tonight is the third in Black Swan series of what we've called hackathons looking specifically at value and the way that value emerges in creative practice. And so we invited 25 or so interdisciplinary practitioners to come to a dinner with a, a valuable thing in mind that over a three-course meal we tried to map and unpack and problematize in some way. And then once we had the kind of values in some way reflected on the table. We asked everybody to always write everything onto the tablecloth itself. We then tried to kind of abstract away from these real things that people were coming with and to try and speculate on what could be some speculative artifacts or some fictional things that would bring together the different values that the people's things reflected. Up. 
but many people came with something valuable in mind to unpack in the dinner. And so the idea with this part is to think about that thing specifically, how it might be embedded in a social context. Are there other people who also find this thing valuable? And like, what are the different processes, the different energies, the different people that make this valuable? So does that kind of make sense? I mean, you seem to be doing it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thank you. So it's going. It's working. See if I am. I, I, yeah. I have myself here. Yeah. And you? I'm you time. You're time. Yeah. Oh my God! I hate you. Uh, I genuinely hate I'm sorry. you. Sorry. People are obsessed with you. But if yeah. we can exchange, uh, you know, like time or like uh, use it as a I currency. Do. You use yourself as a currency. Yeah, as a method of uh, exchange. Maybe, maybe, uh, like, maybe if we construct a new currency. So, um, I'm Integrity. Hello, nice to meet you. And Integrity, uh, me, my body looks like a large cube, which actually consists of spirals, a lot of spirals um, that uh, turn into this cube. And right now it's still a little bit more like lead. But uh, through the alchemic process, it can be turned into gold, quote-unquote. And this gold is when the energy flows through it so um, uh, strongly and high intensity with vibration uh, that it lights up. I spoke with someone else who was essentially embodying the notion of value from a Marxist um, sensibility in the 21st century and as a question. So it was a question of what the Marxist notion of value is in the 21st century, and then this value item went on to say that the notion of Marxist value has changed over time, so it was different over the years, the very notion of value. Then I let them know that I was my mother's love. Um, So I am Saraswati's mother's love, and it was an interesting reflection because I think I ended up at the paradise value table because when I was reflecting on that particular value item that I embody today or in this moment and then in the construct of a larger theoretical and communist frame it seemed like paradise to me my mother's love has been dope I mean sorry I am dope yeah I think what binded us together was the comfort of this corner. <laughs> That's how we got together. And we had some uh, engaged discussions, and what came out of it was this joint manifesto that I will read to you now. And I'll make it uh, your job to make sense of it. <laughs> Transcendental beings, brackets, entities, transpiring truth through meaningful transparency lays bare the stuff that is too often invisible. These were a few clips from some of the conversations at the Black Swan Hackathon Dinner. We had some delicious food, definitely some alcohol, and lots of interesting points. This collective exercise of mini-making unveils some hidden gems that help us to understand how value could be both poetic and critical. Thinking of love as an asset or trust as a social clue, for example. And I particularly like the explanation of one of the teams who use a broken log in a public toilet as a way to exemplify the role of technology and the workings of trust to generate social cohesion. We have this table. Yes, so we have a table. 
our um, uh, artifact is um, actually the broken lock of a public toilet and the situation it evokes when somebody walks in on you. Um, because <laughs> this is a friction wherein um, social conventions um, turn into social agreements and you have to kind of renegotiate how you are going to coexist with each other <laughs> in space. So when technology breaks, yeah, we need to deal with each other with, the, with this human aspect in a human way. And then both parties are like acknowledging the extreme shame that either of them are feeling, and in that vulnerability find an extreme need to be externally altered by the other, and they have to come to some shared agreement Whoa. about how to coexist. And this <laughs> Which brings us back to the moment of blockchain where there is no trust <laughs> between two. These glasses are refilling themselves. Yeah, well, there's a lot to unpack there, I think. Um, the first thing is the term value, which I think has lots of different meanings and obviously there's a common sense understanding of what do you value what was what do you hold dear in some ways and what don't you value and then there's the more kind of uh, econometric vision of value as something that you use as a measure for some kind of quantification of exchange or of you know an asset stock or the way in which flows take place and you know, I think it's a very muddy area and it's an area that there's a lot of different visions and views about it. You know, if you look at one national system where care has been quantified in some way, that Furio-Kipu movement, you know, it certainly is a way of documenting hours spent and different kinds of hours, like they distinguish between you know, doing shopping for somebody versus washing them, for instance. But, you know, that's a way of building a, a network of community that still is honoring the, the nature of the care, but it's allowing for someone to you know, look after their relation at a distance without having to be there by allowing someone else to do that work, but kind of trading the hours in a way without having to pay for it. Of course, it's a complicated process and there has been many examples of different methods aimed at accounting for care and non-monetary values. Now we'll hear from Ai Wenjin and her research on care and technology, and her project Liquid Dependencies, also a game that aims to recreate a society based on long-term care contracts. Ai Wenjin is a designer, design theorist, and project developer who uses writing, speculative design, and time-based art to examine the social impact of planetary communication technologies. I got to know her through her project Reunion Network, which is a DAP, so an app of blockchain, for common in peer-to-peer care. Based on the same ideas, she developed Liquid Dependencies. Today I'm here to host a game called Liquid Dependency. What does a decentralized caring society look like? Which is a love version or card game version that translates the whole system into a playable experience for people. On one hand, that people can get to know the system with their experience by playing it and for me, as a system designer, I also get to know whether the system actually makes sense or not. And uh, yeah, eventually, what does a caring, decentralized society look like? 
the initial question that uh, created this project is asking how uh, blockchain technology in 2017 has been used as like this new thing that will bring in decentralized society even though we know that internet has made that promise quite some decades ago and uh, we didn't land in that ideal place and uh, now the new generation of technology blockchain make a very similar promise and in 2017 when all these projects was in hype and uh, all the promises seems to be about to be real. I realize still no one can really answer, iterate, like what is good for us to have a decentralized society? What it means to us to have a decentralized society? What actually do we want to decentralize at all? So I thought that is actually a very critical and important question if this time in this generation of technology we do want to make some progress, we actually need to imagine what is that decentralized society looks like. So that's where the starting point of this project, and of course you also experience the mutual coin, the kind of uh, currency, uh, it's actually can be quite well developed with the blockchain technology, uh, a programmable money that will help us to recognize the value of care in the context of a relationship, which will be much harder to capture in an analog money system and much easier in a digital with a proof of work, proof of stake kind of technology. Okay, I'm Walker. I'm uh, 46. 
And I'm a social worker, so yeah. I'm uh, Sid, uh, I'm 19 years old. And I've come from a small town near the desert. And I'm Emma, I'm an accountant, I'm uh, 37 years old, and uh, I live in New York City. And I'm so sorry. I'm an artist, she I'm an artist in Berlin. You, you, you make a great contrast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> great, okay. Uh, thank you for everyone. We, now we know each other. And this is a moment that uh, we can introduce a little bit about the society. The Reunion Society is a society that works that's sort of like in the post-pandemic time where a government decided to fund this special uh, currency system as a way to encourage people to really supporting each other through long-term caring relationship. And so in a way that it opens up the kind of prototype that we will ex expect, like who we can rely on, except for family, except for your marital partner, your domestic partner. Is there anything else, like for instance, friendship as a way to support each other. I think today has a fairly uh, complex uh, societal structure and every individual's life, they touch upon uh, very complicated individual issues and also happening in uh, very diverse uh, demographic uh, characters of life. I would say that it's uh, unusual and usual at the same time. Usual in the sense that this game does generate a lot of unique character, unique lifetime, coexisting in the society and people get help or get disappointed or get uh, confronted in many ways. So that's quite usual in the sense of what the game offers. And of course, the whole system that is set up in this society also, I guess, at least create affordance for people to talk more about their vulnerability, their needs for help. So hopefully that is something that people can take away. Actually, interesting enough, a lot of people's first takeaway is not about the societal structure, also not even about the currency, but more about themselves and more about how they, as a human being, live in a society, how they develop relationships, what's their ways of thinking that actually probably put them into certain struggles that they might be experiencing. It is that that actually as a beginning point may not be very visible for some people that like, oh, maybe your game doesn't really convey what you really want to talk about. So when you have this embodied experience, when you realize that your life is living in a certain way and that is actually being a sculpture by the societal structure, by the economic, then after people processing about themselves, then they can actually start into processing like how to relate to other people and then how does these relationships inform and create uh, the society and the other way around as well. So in my experience, that's actually where it becomes powerful. This idea of having a society based on care relationship beyond the family might sound like a bit of a utopia for some. And this utopian dream keeps coming up because blockchain allows us to perform any social imaginary. And this is, of course, its appeal and its pushback. 
Is liquid dependency a utopia? No, because um, I personally find it's very dangerous for a designer or for someone who creates something already decided themselves they want to create a utopia. Probably utopia has always been here, but the question is it belongs to who? Once utopia could be another person's nightmare. So I think the question is not about whether utopia exists, I don't believe that exists. Rather is that when we as a designer that recognize that there will never be a utopia, then we can actually, you know, let go of that fixation and then focusing on like, okay, problems are bound to happen, but how can we work on it in a fair way? If blockchain is one of the few kind of windows of light and hope, remaining then that's a pretty dark place um, but if you're committed to a, a certain kind of somewhat cyberpunk somewhat accelerationist kind of mutation around things then i think there are interesting pockets possibility there the other thing to say about all this is that we're kind of just playing into the hands of andreas and horowitz most of the time as in the a16z the one of the largest venture funds who are really, really had extraordinary success in branding this idea of Web3 and the sort of utopian rhetoric around it in such a way that everyone could be part of the counterculture, literally no matter who you were, as long as you kind of adopted that. We do need to be careful about what and for whom is this utopia. However, these gameful rehearsals like Iwans or Black Swans make us aware of the possibility for thinking of fairer communities. Of course, both projects are actually super different, but they embody a particular value system. Each community has different relationships and their decision-making process is representative of their ethics. I guess the, the theorization then of community economies is thinking about the kind of ethical relationships that make up an economy or that could make up an economy. And those relationships are partly to do with how we regard the other in the process of exchange. So we see exchange as an encounter, really. And, you know, money and formal markets have been a way of washing out the social relations of exchange and making it a purely calculative, cold kind of movement of money that's supposed to equilibrate, you know, supply and demand or whatever, as opposed to a relationship where one is looking to the well-being of the other, for instance, you know, do I want to buy this T-shirt and knowing that it's based on, you know, water extractivism in Mexico or exploitation of labour in other places, or do I want to buy something that is going to encompass a different kind of sociality and ecological relationship? In formal economics, the multiplier effect is a big tool that's used, especially when it comes to a new development. You know, people project, oh, well, if we'll build this casino, the multiplier effect in this regional community will be X thousand jobs. Or if we build this prison, you know, it'll have all these impacts. So that's all we're doing here. It's really just using a different kind of mechanism to try and show what all those multipliers are. And um, it could easily be done for an art project as well. And, you know, sometimes it could be mapped in a more qualitative way, just through stories. For me, one of the most interesting things that I learned from talking to Catherine Gibson was about the method that she developed to assess value in community economies. It was created as a way to measure the impact of an urban farm at the outskirts of Paris called Rurban. 
If we think about social or community returns on investment, this is a great way to understand that community economies also generate wealth, although not in the traditional sense, as they are non-capitalocentric. This means that they hold other non-monetary values and also have the ripple effect of increasing the well-being of a community. And also in terms of an investment strategy for people who think in those terms, it's a very good return on investment. But that was a very particular exercise to try and speak back to people who deal with financial returns on investment, you know, at the same time as talking to our community, we need to say, well, there are strategies for a transition to something else out of what we have now. So it is kind of trying to amplify and give more credibility and more force and agency to very small experiments like small community gardens and things like that. So there's a political agenda that went into that calculation. I guess that's how I see this kind of work we're doing. It is very strategic. It's not trying to set up big systems or big theoretical you know, reflections of how the world should be. It's trying to do these much more pragmatic interventions that hopefully have some effect. Then how you, you bring value into that is again very strategic, I think. Blockchain is an underlying database technology. It's a way of ensuring that data is secure cryptographically in the architecture of the technology itself. And so the first use case of this was Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is all about monetary value or trying to create a digital store of value. But in reality, it's not a store of value because the market around Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies is so on the one hand, like easy to manipulate, and on the other hand, just extremely volatile, that it's not capturing value. It's more being a way for certain people to make a lot of money. And so what Black Swan more generally is trying to think about how do we create indexes or maybe imagine ways of capturing like non-market forms of value or different forms of value. And, underlying in our research at the moment is thinking about how could creative communities capture the value that's produced by their artistic processes? Could the values produced by an artistic or creative process also turn into a sustainable economic model or even like business model for these practices? So instead of art having to lead towards a luxury commodity, as is the case in the contemporary art market, could actually working in particular ways, developing certain processes, developing new ways of working with technologies, serve to become a sustainable economic model. So the process rather than the object being the source of value. There has been attempts to quantify unpaid labor and map it out in a way that you could do using you know, input-output tables and all that kind of same technology. To what end? To the end of just saying, you know, more than half of the goods and services produced in every economy are coming from unpaid labour, from the non-commodified world, you know. So I um, haven't been that involved in trying to reinvent a value kind of calculative kind of framework, and I'm interested to see the way blockchain is trying to do that and to what extent it is focused on the question of exchange, because it seems to me that economies and the ways in which we talk about community economies is there's exchange 
or encounter is just one of the many moments of an economy. Obviously, there's the production, there's the um, access and negotiation of ownership, there's questions of how you save and finance things, etc. The actual exchange moment, which has been focused on commodity exchange, I suppose, but also exchange of finance to, in terms of interest rates and so on, are just parts of what an economy is. So to what extent blockchain can be used to only focus on those kinds of relationships of exchange versus other things, and I'm not sure. Through this wandering around the outskirts of economic and political languages, we were able to find all the values that are usually unaccounted for in our society. The participatory events hosted at Fanabe Museum enable us to experience new social compositions, values, ways of understanding the world as if they already overcome today's problems. In these participatory rehearsals of the not yet, we became more aware of the plurality of value and its fluidity. Was it successful? Successful is always an ambiguous indicator. You could say that the movements of 1968 didn't have political consequences per se, but actually triggered a systemic change where society and its institutions reconsider issues like drugs, sex, race, class and gender. Thinking of blockchain as a revolutionary technology remains unclear. For me, these practices do not provoke a paradigm shift, but they do foster discrete political effects. The technology is just a tool that makes us ask the right questions and a device that triggers our imagination to think and convey today's utopias. Could this be a revolution? I mean, it, the old big scale, I mean, it's coming out of that vision of there has to be revolutionary, cataclysmic, you know, you know change that happens in one moment, otherwise it's not going to do anything. Perhaps this all-encompassing revolution is never going to happen. And most likely, as Catherine Gibson indicates, it is the wrong way of seeing change. I believe in the possibility of creating mini-earthquakes in some consciousness and in the potential of slowly changing subjectivities. To me, wealth, and I mean this in the most traditional sense of the word, is not the only factor that trickles down to all, as neoliberals claim. But collective well-being also holds ripple effects. In the next episode, we will delve deeper into the potential of games, reenactment and prefiguration as mechanisms that could help us envision a world post-crisis. By using these tactics, we could adjust and try to adapt blockchain technology to the particular characteristics of a different community. The White Papers and Design podcast is produced and narrated by me, Barbara Cueto, with audio production and sound design by Lucia Scazzocchio from Social Broadcast. This podcast was supported by Fanave Museum and Creative Industries Fund in the Netherlands.